Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. A backyard experiment incites nuclear panic. David said, don't touch it. It's highly radioactive. An escalating battle of Wild West wits. He went apocalyptic. San Francisco wasn't big enough for the two of them. And the curious blackmail of a clever con. The idea of paying money for a fictitious affair is abhorrent. Inside the walls of great institutions lie extraordinary relics, tales of intrigue and wonder, and secrets waiting to be revealed. These are the mysteries at the museum. The desert west of Albuquerque, New Mexico, possesses one of the highest concentrations of uranium deposits in the world. So it's no surprise that the city has been dubbed the nuclear capital of the nation. And celebrating this rich legacy is the National Museum of Nuclear Science and History. Here, visitors can view devices that have affected human life. From a decommissioned British nuclear bomb to a gamma ray camera, and even a shoe store's foot x-ray machine. But tucked away in a glass case is one item devoid of technical function. The artifact is only about the size of a silver dollar, woven of cloth, brightly colored, and it was worn on a uniform. As museum director Jim Wathel attests, this unassuming emblem speaks to an inconceivable experiment. It reveals a brush with disaster that placed a small town in grave danger. What is this badge, and what role did it play in an explosive tale of atomic intrigue? 1994, Commerce Township, Michigan. 17-year-old David Hahn is a chemistry whiz kid. Using his parents' shed as a lab, he has conducted dozens of highly advanced experiments. But now, David is doggedly pursuing a singular goal. David is a Boy Scout, and he wants to become an Eagle Scout. To achieve Eagle rank, 
David must accomplish two things. Earn 21 merit badges of his choosing, one of which is the atomic energy badge like this one on display at the National Museum of Nuclear Science and History, and demonstrate leadership by completing a special project. For this, most scouts pursue traditional activities, like planting trees or constructing park benches. But David has something far more ambitious in mind. David planned to build a nuclear reactor. This is a fairly ludicrous idea. With millions and millions of dollars at their disposal, scientists still had trouble creating these reactors. And here David was going to try and make one in his mother's potting shed. David, however, is confident in his abilities. He just needs to find the right materials. A reactor creates nuclear energy by splitting atoms with the help of radioactive elements like plutonium or uranium. Luckily for all of us, these materials are extremely hard to get. But David has a plan. David created a fake persona for himself as a working professor at a university trying to do research in nuclear energy. He learns that everyday items like smoke detectors, gas lanterns, and old clocks often contain minute amounts of radioactive material. David orders a large quantity of smoke detectors, and he takes the little tiny piece of americium out of them. He gathers gas lanterns for their thorium and old clocks for their radium. Then, using a Geiger counter to monitor radiation levels, he combines the elements together in tinfoil blocks, creating his own version of a nuclear core. Inside it were things that were highly radioactive and unshielded. Next, he fashions a contraption to trigger fission. David built a device with a lead block, placing radium inside it. The radium emitted radiation that could be pointed at the other materials that he had on hand. This became a neutron gun. When the radium neutrons bombard the blocks, he expects to see a dramatic increase in radiation. But much to David's disappointment, it doesn't seem to work. While small amounts of heat are being generated, his Geiger counter indicates that there is no sustained nuclear reaction. David is becoming frustrated. In his mind, it should work. He sets aside the experiment to rethink his approach. A few days later, David is driving home when he notices something odd. The Geiger counter that he had in his car began to ping way before he reached his house. He knew something was terribly wrong. David rushes back to the shed, and his Geiger counter confirms that radiation levels have skyrocketed. The material that he was assembling was far more radioactive than he understood. Now, the entire neighborhood is in danger, and there is no way to turn off the reactor. David rushes to dismantle his creation. David disassembled his cores. He put them in a toolbox, locked it, put it in the trunk of his car. He is desperately searching for a place to dispose of the toxic materials when, at 2.40 a.m. on August 31st, police lights flash in his rearview mirror. The officers asked David what he was doing at 2.40 in the morning. David replied that he was waiting for a friend. But the police don't buy it. And while searching his trunk, they discover the toolbox. David stopped them and said, don't touch it. It's highly radioactive. The police didn't know what they were confronting, thinking maybe it was an atomic bomb. They arrested David. 
When police prod him on the contents of the toolbox, he confesses to everything. Federal investigators are rushed in. When the investigators examine the shed, they find that it's highly radioactive. On June 26, 1995, the EPA embarks upon a $60,000 cleanup of David's backyard, hauling everything away in drums. Meanwhile, the overly ambitious Boy Scout nervously awaits his fate. Because he purchased all of his materials legally, police are unable to charge him with a crime, and he is released. David is relieved, and despite nearly destroying the town, his nuclear know-how is rewarded with the coveted status of Eagle Scout. Today, this atomic energy badge, safely housed at the National Museum of Nuclear Science and History, reminds us of one eager Boy Scout's radioactive ambition. Located in the heart of New York City's financial district is an establishment that is almost as old as the city itself, Trinity Church. Founded in 1697, this parish's extensive history is catalogued in the Trinity Archives. This depository houses original building plans, a bell used to signal workers during construction, and records relating to the church cemetery's most notable resident, Alexander Hamilton. But one of Trinity's most intriguing items tells an undignified tale from this institution's past. It's about three quarters of an inch thick. It weighs about a pound. It has a, a black cover with gold writing. According to archivist Anne Petromu, the words on these pages chronicle an unholy series of events. Inside the symbol book is a series of short handwritten diary entries that catalog one of the more bizarre chapters in Trinity's history. Who authored this journal? And what outlandish incident does it immortalize? 1880, New York City. Reverend Morgan Dix is the minister of Trinity Parish, the most esteemed church in this growing metropolis. Dix is a very public figure, a very well-respected figure. One day, while sorting the church's mail, Dix finds a letter addressed to him. It seems to be from a salesman at the Acme Safe Company, thanking him for his interest in their products. He's confused because he didn't have any interest in their safes. He never asked them about this. Dix sends a polite reply, stating that there must be some mistake, and considers the matter concluded. Then, that same afternoon, another eager salesman arrives at his door. It's a faculty member from a nearby girls' academy with a brochure about his school. Dix is dumbfounded, but the salesman insists he's there at the reverend's request. And he has a card to prove it. He looks at it, and it has his signature on it. Only he didn't write it. Somebody had forged his signature. Over the next few days, a steady stream of mail and salesmen arrive at the reverend's home. So after the dozens of solicitors, the hundreds of postcards, he's left feeling angry and annoyed. Someone obviously had to be doing this, but he didn't know who or why. Then, one particular letter grabs his attention. It lays out a very specific set of demands. The letter asks for $1,000 to stop the racket of solicitors and the annoying letters, and it threatens to expose an alleged affair if not paid. And it's signed simply, Gentleman Joe. 
He's horrified. The idea of paying money for a fictitious affair is abhorrent. Dix publicly expresses concern over the matter, and word of the sinister prank spreads throughout the city. To get to the bottom of the mystery, the police assign a postal detective named James Gaylor. James Gaylor is a former special agent employed to investigate any crimes involving the mail. Gaylor asks the reverend if he has any enemies. But Dix can't think of anything. Soon, Dix receives another letter from Gentleman Joe. This one is up the ante, and he's now asking for $1,500. He signs off the letter with an ominous threat, saying that if it's not paid, he'll even show up in church on Sunday. Fearful that Gentleman Joe may be planning a violent attack, Gaylor realizes he must act. So who is this fraudster, and how can he be stopped? In the market for investment-worthy bags, watches, and fine jewelry, Rebag is the answer. Rebag is a luxury resale platform where each piece is carefully inspected by experts to ensure quality and authenticity. Use Rebag to buy and sell finds from the world's top brands, including Louis Vuitton, Chanel, and Cartier. Head to Rebag.com and get up to 15% off your first purchase as a member with code REBAGNEW. Shop today at Rebag.com. That's R-E-B-A-G.com. And use promo code REBAGNEW for up to 15% off your first purchase as a member. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. Hey, Dave. Yeah, Randy. Since we founded Bombas, we've always said our socks, underwear, and T-shirts are super soft. Any new ideas? Maybe sublimely soft. Or disgustingly cozy. Wait, what? I got it. Bombas. Absurdly comfortable essentials for yourself and for those facing homelessness. Because one purchased equals one donated. Wow, did we just write an ad? Yes. Bombus. Big comfort for everyone. Go to bombus.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. It's eighteen eighty in New York City. The esteemed reverend of Trinity Church, Morgan Dix, is being blackmailed by an elusive figure known only as Gentleman Joe. But investigators soon begin to fear that this seemingly civilized con man harbors violent intent. So who is Gentleman Joe? And can he be caught before it's too late? Postal Inspector Gaylor analyzes Gentleman Joe's handwriting, but it yields no clues. So he takes a closer look at the stationery itself. 
They're all written on really high quality white paper. And they're all torn at the top as if the letterhead was removed. So a light bulb goes off. Gaylor has a hunch that the paper may come from one of the city's upscale hotels. So he begins painstakingly scanning the signatures in guest registries, hoping to discover a handwriting match. On March 19th at the Windsor Hotel, the long shot strategy pays off. He sees in front of him a name written with the same curly Q handwriting as Gentleman Joe. The name is Eugene Williamson. The hotel clerk informs Gaylor that Williamson checked out only hours earlier en route to Baltimore. The investigator rushes to Maryland and tracks the strange man to a private residence. Gaylor knocks on the door and Williamson answers. Gaylor says, I must place you under arrest, Gentleman Joe. Detectives learn that the 39-year-old Williamson is a notorious prankster and attention seeker. It seems he targeted the highly public preacher simply as a means of securing the spotlight. He wanted to create a sensation and be in the public eye. Williamson is convicted of forgery and attempted extortion and sent to Sing Sing Prison. There, the forgiving reverend pays him a visit. Dix writes about the meeting in his journal, now housed in our archives, and Dix says that Williamson was full of remorse. He committed these crimes more for the spectacle than for any actual need for money. This detailed journal in the Trinity Church archives will forever preserve the story of the holy man, the con man, and the peculiar attempt at extortion that once captivated the city of New York. St. Louis, Missouri. In 1904, this city became the first in the United States to host the Olympics. Today, the spirit of international competition lives on at the World Chess Hall of Fame. Here, everything from tournament trophies to fashion exhibits illustrate the game's 1,500-year history. But according to Chief Curator Shannon Bailey, there's one set of items in the hall's collection that sat center stage during chess's crowning moment. These 32 pieces are hand-carved. They're weighted with lead. One set is dark wood. The other set is light wood. These small figures were used in a crucial match at the height of the 20th century's most dramatic political standoff. So who wielded these chessmen? And how did the outcome of this epic contest change the course of Cold War history? It's 1962. Eight of the greatest players on Earth are gathered on the Caribbean island of Curaçao for the qualifying round of the World Chess Championship. Among them is a 19-year-old American prodigy named Bobby Fischer. He won his first U.S. championship at the age of 14 and the following year becomes the youngest grandmaster in history. But Fischer's unparalleled achievements are often overshadowed by his erratic behavior. He was kind of difficult. He was always fighting about the noise or where the chess pieces came from. Though the players are there to compete individually, Americans are rooting for Fisher to take the crown from the most dominant chess nation on Earth, the United States Cold War adversary, the Soviet Union. This American might be able to rival the great Russian chess dynasty. But as the games get underway, it appears that Fisher is out of his league. 
He loses his first two games. There were so many Russians that he needed to beat, and it just didn't work out for him. Fisher finishes the tournament in fourth place, with three Russian players taking the top spots. But Bobby doesn't take the defeat lying down. He comes back and immediately writes a letter to Sports Illustrated. He accuses the Russians of cheating. Fisher alleges that the Soviet players colluded with each other to ensure that their strongest players reached the finals. The Russians are playing as a team and everyone else is playing individually. Fisher concludes his letter with a drastic declaration. He says he's not going to participate in the qualifying matches to the World Chess Championship until the World Chess Federation does something about it. With Fisher sitting out in protest, it seems the hopes of bringing a title to the U.S. are dashed. Then, nine years later, in 1972, Bobby Fischer shocks the world by showing up at a World Championship qualifier in Vancouver, British Columbia. And he wastes no time destroying the competition. Bobby is on fire. He goes on this amazing winning streak. So he qualifies for the 1972 World Championship. Fischer's opponent in the final showdown will be Soviet Grandmaster Boris Spassky. Bobby had played him five times already, never beating him. On July 11th, the World Chess Championship kicks off in Reykjavik, Iceland. As Fischer and Spassky face each other for the first of 24 games, the media swarms. They dubbed it the match of the century. Here is the Cold War being fought on the chessboard. The world stopped. The men battle for two hours until Fisher makes a fatal blunder. He traps his bishop, which is a very powerful piece, and there's no way that he can overtake Spassky in this game. The Soviet takes the lead, one to nothing. Then, Fisher's volatile temper rears its head. He is complaining about the cameras and the noise, and he starts acting kind of erratically and is being very difficult to everybody. When it's time for game two, Boris Spassky takes his place behind the board. But Fisher is nowhere to be found. So after an allotted time period, it's declared a forfeit. Spassky stands up. They congratulate him. You won game two. The world wonders what's become of the unpredictable American. But before the start of game three, Fisher contacts tournament officials and explains that he'll continue under one condition. And he said, the cameras have to go. With international television audiences on the edge of their seats and broadcasting contracts on the line, event organizers decline. If he doesn't show up, the match has to be declared a forfeit. With the entire match and Cold War prestige at stake, officials finally concede to Fisher's demands. The arbiter agrees that they can play in a room backstage from the auditorium. Boris Spassky agrees to the change of venue. And on July 16th, the two begin Game 3, using this set of wooden pieces now on display at the World Chess Hall of Fame. Bobby does a very aggressive move where he takes his knight and puts it on the outside of the board, which is really unheard of because you're supposed to attack from the middle. The move throws Spassky off, and Fischer takes his first victory. Game three is the turning point of the match. A rejuvenated Fisher agrees to conduct the next match in front of the cameras. 
Fisher goes on to win six of the next eight games, which was completely unprecedented at the time, even for players that good. On August 13th, Bobby Fischer becomes the new world champion of chess. He'll always be looked at as being a hero of the Cold War and dominant figure of American history. Today, these 32 chess pieces used in Bobby Fischer's incredible match are on display at the World Chess Hall of Fame, reminding visitors of the unconventional American who brought decades of Soviet dominance to an end. Redwood City, California is steeped in the fast-paced, high-tech culture of Silicon Valley. But the logging industry gave birth to this region nearly a century and a half ago. This staggering evolution is chronicled at the San Mateo County History Museum. On display are items that once belonged to the industrious people who first transformed the area's fortunes. A horse-drawn plow, a stagecoach, and a rancher's saddle. But one artifact speaks of a dark chapter in this cherished past. It has a dark rosewood handle, a three and a half inch barrel, a metal finish, and is comprised of a cylinder. According to author Simon Reed, this is not just any firearm. This gun represents the culmination of a conflict between two prominent San Franciscans. Who wielded this weapon? And how did it turn the tides for one of San Francisco's best-known institutions? 1879, San Francisco, California. Charles DeYoung and his brother work tirelessly to string together the burgeoning newspaper they run, the San Francisco Chronicle. Charles DeYoung was a very serious young man. The Chronicle was his entire life. Stories are not hard to find. The city is bursting at the seams with an influx of people, and crime is on the rise. This gave rise to an anti-immigrant sentiment. De Young, however, is the son of immigrants and uses his paper to staunchly advocate on their behalf. Soon, the topic takes center stage in the race for mayor. The looming mayoral elections in 1879 were a huge issue for the Chronicle. Uh, Charles DeYoung in particular, if only because he did not like one of the candidates running for mayor. In fact, it's probably safe to say he loathed the man. The candidate in question is a fiercely anti-immigrant Baptist minister named Isaac Kallick. Isaac Kallick physically was very imposing. He's a grizzly bear of a man and, of course, with a very deep, powerful voice to match. DeYoung resolves to use the power of his paper to influence the election. So he sends his reporters to dig up dirt from Kallick's past. The reporters subsequently found a whole lot of stuff, very unflattering. They discover that the candidate is a voracious drinker, has numerous unpaid debts, and has a surprising reputation as an adulterer. And so from Charles DeYoung's point of view, this was great news, and he did not hesitate to slap it in the pages of the Chronicle. For stories like this to have come out with a preacher as their centerpiece, it was very scandalous, and it caused a huge uproar. And this sent Isaac Callock into a rage. In a fiery speech, Callock sternly shoots down the allegations, condemning the paper and its publishers. Isaac Callock basically says the Chronicle is an instrument of hell, says the de Youngs are the bastard progeny of a whore conceived in infamy and nursed in the lap of prostitution. When he learns of the brazen insults, DeYoung is incensed. He went apocalyptic. 
There was absolutely no doubt that he was going to strike back at Calloc. San Francisco wasn't big enough for the two of them. On August 23rd, DeYoung hires a carriage to Calloc's house and sends word that a young lady awaits the esteemed reverend. Calloc approaches the carriage, and as he's stepping up to open the door, Charles DeYoung thrusts himself out of a window, and he shoots Isaac Calloc. Calloc collapses to the sidewalk and lies in a pool of his own blood. Police are quickly on the scene, and DeYoung is carted off to jail, while Calloc is rushed to the hospital. The wounds to Calloc were very severe, so his prognosis was not good. But remarkably, Calloc recovers from the attack. He defiantly vows to stay in the race for mayor, and on September 3rd, he wins. It was basically a sympathy vote. People voted for Isaac Calloc because they felt sorry for him. The incarcerated DeYoung is furious. He manages to post bail and returns to the Chronicle with a renewed focus. Charles DeYoung immediately set about thrashing Isaac Calloc in the pages of his paper again. On the evening of April 23rd, 1880, DeYoung is meeting customers in his office when a stranger enters. The gentleman said nothing. He simply reached into his coat pocket, pulled out a Smith & Wesson revolver, and started shooting. Bullets from this gun, today on display at the San Mateo County History Museum, kill Charles DeYoung in an instant. The shooter attempts to flee, but doesn't get far. He was caught red-handed with the smoking gun still in his hand. The assailant is immediately recognized as Milton Kallick, the mayor's son. He's arrested, charged with murder, and put on trial. There seemed to be no question of Milton Kallick's guilt. The witnesses detail the attack, but Milton presents a surprising counter-argument. He fired in self-defense. And amazingly, the jury buys it. They found Milton Kallock not guilty and ruled the homicide justifiable. An investigation determines that his father was not involved. While Mayor Kallock emerges unscathed, the legacy of his fallen rival lives on in the institution to which he devoted his life. The San Francisco Chronicle is today San Francisco's only surviving major daily newspaper. It's one of the great metropolitan dailies in the United States. And today, at the San Mateo County History Museum, this gun remains a stark reminder of the bitter rivalry between two powerful men and the might of the printed word. New Iberia, Louisiana. Named for the peninsula from which its Spanish settlers hailed, today this city embodies the area's Cajun and Creole cultures. This heritage is celebrated here at the Bayou Teche Museum. Its collection includes a pre-Civil War cast-iron sugar kettle, a Mardi Gras costume, and an accordion and fiddle that produced the region's signature sounds. Yet hidden amidst these man-made artifacts is a sparkling formation of geological origins. It weighs about 15 pounds. It's about 11 inches wide. According to historian Shane K. Bernard, this mineral is a key ingredient in a spicy story that put this region on the map. It ties into one of the most famous exports of this area, something that's known around the world. What is this rock? And how did it help cook up one of America's hottest culinary products? 1860, New Orleans. With the country on the verge of civil war, the looming conflict remains only a distant concern for this city's residents. 
and among them is 45-year-old Edmund McElhenney, a devoted father and family man who enjoys his hometown's culture and cuisine. Edmund belonged to some of the top social clubs in New Orleans. He was definitely a mid-19th century foodie. The hard-working McElhenney oversees a small financial empire that includes five banks and various plantations across the state. He was loaning money to farmers and businessmen, and he believed that by the mid-1860s, he would be making a huge profit on his return. But his dreams are soon thrown into disarray. April 1862. The Union Army seizes control of New Orleans. And desperate to avoid the violence that is taking over the city, McElhenney flees to one of his properties 140 miles west, on what is now known as Avery Island. They moved to their plantation thinking, well, surely out here in the middle of nowhere, we'll get away from the conflict. In the remote location, there is little McElhenney can do but tend to business. One day, while digging a well, one of his workers finds that fertile fields aren't the island's only resource. Solid rock salt was found on the island only about 16 feet underground. McElhenney knows that salt, just like this block today on display at the Bayou Tesh Museum, is a critical wartime provision used to preserve meat, cure leather, and affix dyes in military uniforms. So finding a virtually inexhaustible supply of salt on Avery Island was almost as good as finding a gold mine. McElhenney soon purchases mining equipment to extract the salt. In short order, his mine is producing 22 million pounds of salt for the Confederacy, making him more money than he can dream of. But then, in April 1863, McElhenney learns that northern troops are headed straight for Avery Island, and they have their eyes set on its signature resource. You had not just infantry, but artillery, cavalry, and even naval forces coming up the bayou in the form of gunboats. It was a pretty big campaign. Faced with this threat, McElhenney and his family flee to Texas, riding out the conflict in relative peace. Then, in 1865, when the Civil War finally ends, McElhenney returns to Avery Island, hoping to find a civilian market for his salt. But when he arrives, he discovers that much of his property and equipment have been sacked by the Union Army. And despite having reaped enormous profits during the war, McElhenney soon learns that doing business with the losing side has come at an enormous cost. Unfortunately for them, they were paid in Confederate paper money, which would become worthless. One day, McElhenney is reportedly examining his ransacked garden when he notices something peeking out of the soil. The only vegetable that Edmund found growing in the old family garden were these very hardy red peppers that had somehow survived being trampled on by Union horses. Edmund picks a few peppers and at first employs them in a typical fashion. Edmund originally used the peppers just to garnish whatever meal happened to be served that day in the Avery home. Then he realized if you mash it and mix it with vinegar and put a little salt in there, it tastes even better. Using the island's abundant salt, McElhenney tinkers with the recipe. When family and friends sample the concoction, they're amazed and think there might be a market for it beyond their dinner table. In 1869, the enterprising McElhenney ships a batch to grocers in New Orleans, where it's a breakout hit. 
he was actually having grocers and wholesalers petition him saying, can we handle your business in this area? With demand growing by the day, McElhinney brands his product Tabasco sauce. And I think he chose that word because the Tabasco region of Mexico was already heavily associated with spice and seasonings. After McElhinney dies in 1890, his descendants continue to mine salt from Avery Island, putting it into every bottle of their signature sauce for generations to come. Today, we make a little over 700,000 bottles per day. That's twice as much per day as Edmund made during his entire 22-year career. This hunk of rock salt on display at the Bayou Teche Museum reminds visitors of the spiciest culinary story to emerge from the Civil War. Just outside of Albuquerque, New Mexico, is the 600-acre flagship campus of the largest school in the state, the University of New Mexico. And within the school is a research and teaching facility called the Museum of Southwestern Biology. Grown out of a local collection of natural specimens started in 1928, the museum holds samples of an astounding 2.5 million fish, 100,000 arthropods, and 65,000 parasites. But it's one container in the mammal section that may be the most captivating. The artifact is fluid-filled with ethanol, contains around 50 specimens. It's labeled Paramiscus maniculatus in McKinley County, New Mexico. According to collections manager John Dunham, the eerie animal contents of this jar once spread the fear of death over the entire region. Seemingly healthy people were dying really quickly, and no one knew how to stop it. What are these creatures? And how do they incite widespread panic? May 1993, Gallup, New Mexico. Dr. Bruce Tempest, the chief of internal medicine at Gallup Indian Health Service, is working his normal shift when a young Navajo man is rushed into the ER. The patient, a nationally known track star, is perplexingly ill. This patient is a young, healthy man that otherwise seems to be in really good shape. He's showing signs of serious labored breathing and has had flu-like symptoms. Dr. Tempest and his team struggle to stabilize the patient, but his vital signs plummet. Within an hour, he's pronounced dead. Doctors are stunned. What could have caused an otherwise healthy young man to succumb so quickly? Tempest turns to the patient's x-ray. What they find is that the patient's lungs are completely filled with fluid. He's basically suffocated to death. In search of more clues, Dr. Tempest questions the teen's family. What he discovers is troubling. About five days earlier, this patient's fiance also came down with these symptoms, and she also died really, really rapidly. Tempest immediately starts to wonder, you know, is this some kind of bizarre coincidence? Or is there something bigger going on here? When he calls hospitals in the Four Corners region, the intersection of New Mexico, Arizona, Colorado, and Utah, he learns something disconcerting. There are three other cases in the surrounding area over the past couple weeks. With five comparable deaths in a short period of time, Tempest is worried that this may be the beginning of a deadly viral outbreak. We could be talking about tens of people. We could be talking about thousands of people. 
Word of the outbreak sends thousands of concerned citizens to local hospitals and draws national attention. The media descend on the Four Corners area and things start to get really crazy. Desperate to identify the source, Tempest runs through a checklist of known respiratory illnesses. The first thing that comes to mind in the Southwest is plague. Plague is endemic to New Mexico. But none of the victims test positive for plague. So Tempest then tests for you know, other possibilities, like various flu strains, Legionnaire's disease, anthrax maybe, all come back negative. Soon, Tempest begins to wonder if he's dealing with a new unidentified killer virus. At a loss, he reaches out for help from the CDC, the Centers for Disease Control. The case is assigned to investigative specialist Chief C.J. Peters. Peters sends this rapid response team directly to the epicenter of this outbreak. CDC workers collect samples of food, water, and soil from the homes of victims. But when tested, they show no evidence of any virus or toxin. Everything comes up empty. So this leaves them back at square one. As more cases are reported, the death toll climbs into the double digits. If they don't solve this quickly, more people are going to die. CDC investigator Peters broadens his scope and painstakingly compares tissue samples taken from the victims against a database of obscure diseases. And at long last, a match. This mystery illness was being caused by a hantavirus, which is a, a rodent-borne virus that, that typically had been restricted to Southeast Asia. Hantavirus produces flu-like symptoms, and in four out of ten cases, it's fatal. Now, to stop this sickness, investigators must identify exactly how it's spreading. Agents set rodent traps in the areas of infection and catch several dozen deer mice, the same specimens today stored at the Museum of Southwestern Biology. In the lab, the deer mice immediately test positive for hantavirus. So this is the smoking gun. They found the same virus in a rodent species and in these human cases. But the question remains, what brought on this exotic virus? The cause of this outbreak was really, really high populations of deer mice. The flourishing mouse population can be traced to more plentiful food sources that were the result of a wet weather phenomenon known as El Nino. As a precaution, the CDC orders people across the region to mouse-proof their homes, set traps, and call exterminators. Public panic tapers off and the outbreak is controlled. But though it is better understood, there is still no known cure for hantavirus. And today, these infected specimens stand as a reminder of the dogged determination of healthcare officials to stop a devastating outbreak in its tracks. From a chess champion to an overzealous when you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Teen, a spicy enterprise 
to an unsolicited attack. I'm Don Wildman, and these are the mysteries at the museum. <laughs>